Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel. We're getting close to the end now. And we're looking at verses 26 through 54. We began last week in this section. We'll make progress today. I think uh, we're probably not likely to finish today. We'll finish it up next week. There's just so much here. I don't want to rush through it and miss this opportunity because I don't think we'll ever go back here again. So we might as well do it right the first time through. What do you think? Huh? You know, one of the one of the joys and, and uh, privileges, really, of a long and regular reading of the Old Testament as part of, of uh, just making use of the means of grace that God gives us through his word is that you see connections. You see, as you're reading the Old Testament and certainly having, knowing the end of the story uh, through the New Testament, you begin to see places where God had salted in types and pictures and foreshadowings of uh, what he was going to do uh, when he sent his son into the world to deliver his people from their sin. In fact, in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, when Joseph was struggling so with the, with the news about his, his uh, fiancée's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel came to him and, and said to him, Joseph, do not be afraid to take her as your wife. And uh, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You shall name him Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. And I was reflecting on that a little bit, and in light of the Old Testament, and my, uh, my mind was drawn to another Joseph, a Joseph that we find in the, uh, in the book of Genesis, really the Joseph story occupying the final segment of that book of Genesis. And there, that Joseph, you'll remember, was killed, as it were, by his brothers, His brothers wanted his death. They plotted his death. They turned him over to slave traders, every bit intending for him to have died in the process. He was killed, as it were. And the interesting thing is that he was killed in the providence of God, ultimately to bring deliverance to the sons of Israel, to the children, the offspring of Abraham. And in fact, That's exactly what Joseph himself says in chapter 50 and in verse 20 when his brothers are very concerned that Joseph will use his authority as second in the kingdom of Egypt to extract retribution on them for what they had done. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And just thinking about that and the crucifixion of Christ, those who crucified Christ meant it for evil. But God meant it for good, that he might bring about the deliverance of many alive. You were here this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior, you're placing your full weight and confidence for your future in his finished cross work, then you are the fruit of of that great sacrifice that he made. You are the many who have been delivered alive because of the death of the very Son of God. The Christian church celebrates Good Friday. It comes on the Friday before the Resurrection Sunday. And I don't know how quickly in church history it began to be called Good Friday. I meant to look that up and, and uh, neglected to do so. I can't imagine that in the very, very beginning that it necessarily picked up that name. I suspect it came only later with theological reflection that we would come to call the day when they crucified Christ Good Friday. But it is good, is it not? It is good indeed. It is the greatest good. The greatest good in the universe wrapped in a package of the greatest wickedness. 
And beloved, it is a truth. The night is darkest before it dawns. And as we look here in Matthew 27 and beginning in verse 26, that's exactly what we see. The darkest of the night, and then the dawn breaks. Let me read for you. We'll pick up the reading actually back in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 27. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, They took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, They divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Trust in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the la- all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things which were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Beloved, here in this account, this glorious account, this horrific account of the very darkest of days and the very brightest of days, we have three words. We have a three-word outline, three words designed to, to capture the horror and the glory of this dark event. Last week, we looked at the first of those words. The word was abuse. The word was abuse. 
verses 26 through 44. The abuse of the Son of Man at his crucifixion. And we noted as we looked at that last week that three times Matthew records for us the statement that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Once in each of the three sequences of his abuse. There as he is mocked by the Roman soldiers in verses 27 through 31. They are the words of a mocker and a scoffer to be sure. But within them, buried there within the scoffing is the sublime reality that Jesus is the king. Again, Matthew records for us in verses 33 through 37. There at the crucifixion itself, Pilate has inscribed on a plaque and nailed to the cross above the head of Jesus that this is the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate was seeking to shame and mock and abuse both Jesus and the Jewish people. But again, the reality of the kingship of Christ comes blazing through the darkest of moments. We noted third in 38 through 44 as he is mocked by the passerbys, as he is mocked by the robbers, the the insurrectionists themselves, as he is mocked by the religious leadership of his nation. In the words of their own mocking, they also declare the truth that Jesus is the King of Israel, verse 42. Matthew wants us to know, he wants us to see, he does not want us to miss That in the midst of the circumstances that seem absolutely hopeless, the wickedness, the darkness, the cruelty, the barbary of it all, this truth cannot be concealed. Jesus is the king. The scoffers mock him, but unknowingly they proclaim the hope of this inspiring truth. Jesus is king. Beloved, that is an anchor for our soul. Amen? Jesus is king. Even when we fail to remember it, even when we do not recognize it, Jesus is king. This morning I want to look with you at verses 45 to 50 in some close detail. And the word that we have placed here as a place marker for our thoughts is the word abandonment. Abuse, now abandonment. The abandonment of the Son of God. Here in verse 45, Matthew tells us, Now from about the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Jesus was placed on the cross, according to Mark chapter 15 and and verse 25, about 9 a.m. About 9 a.m., he is nailed to the tree, and he hangs there and endures the mocking of the crowds, of of those that have been crucified either side of him, of the religious establishment of the nation, for something around three hours. Three hours, he is quiet, he is silent, he endures the endless mocking. But then something spectacular happens here, verse 45, about the sixth hour, Matthew tells us. The sixth hour, that is noon. About noon time, something incredible happens. Noon, the brightest part of the day, the the day when the sun is at its peak in the sky, there in the midst of, of the brightness of the noonday sun, something incredible happens. The lights go out. It goes dark. Do you see it? From about noon, that is the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, that is till about 3 p.m., for three hours now at the, at the what should be the brightest, warmest, sunniest part of a day. God turns out the lights and all goes dark. Luke tells us in Luke twenty three forty one 
that the sun was obscured. That's his terminology. The sun was obscured. Some from this think that it was likely a solar eclipse. But it couldn't be a solar eclipse, not any kind of solar eclipse that is, that is normal or common or that you or I would understand. For Jesus was crucified at the Passover season. And at the Passover season, the, the moon is full in the sky. You don't get solar eclipses in a full moon. It's just not a natural phenomenon. This is not a natural phenomenon. This is not a simple eclipse of the sun. This is a supernatural darkness, a supernatural eclipse of the sun. This is God Almighty turning out the lights on his world. What are we to make of the darkness? What are we to make of the darkness that that comes upon the land? Well, we know in the scriptures that darkness is frequently associated with the judgment of God. Darkness and the judgment of God go hand in hand in the scriptures. For example, we can, we can turn to Amos. So I'll invite you to, to do that if you're so inspired or can find it. You can turn to Amos. Amos chapter 5 and verse 20. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Or chapter 8 and verse 9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. These are speaking of, of the judgment of the Lord. These are the great Prophecies of the future and final judgment of the nation of Israel when, again, God will turn out the lights. But it is darkness. It is a supernatural darkness that accompanies the judgment of God as he pours it forth. I think probably most well-known is the darkness associated with the judgment on the nation of Egypt, right? As God unfolded his plagues of judgment upon the nation of Israel, like like blows from a hammer with increasing severity, there, just prior to, to the slaying of the firstborn, God sends a supernatural darkness that covers the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three years. Days, a darkness you could feel. Beloved, darkness is, a, is an interesting phenomenon, an interesting phenomenon, and, and one that very few of, few of us uh, really experience that is total darkness. And I don't mean just, the, obviously, the judgment of God. I'm just talking about the phenomenon of darkness. I can remember many, many years ago having opportunity to to uh, visit a coal mine. And having been taken a mile into the coal mine, they said, you want to you wanna see what darkness is really like? And they turned out the lights. And there, a mile below the surface of the earth, you literally cannot see the hand in front of your face. No light at all. It is a darkness you can feel. But here it is a supernatural darkness. And it is a darkness associated with the wrath of God. So for three hours, this supernatural darkness descends upon the land. And it ends only with the death of Christ himself. It ends with his death. Notice It fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, and his death follows really only a few minutes later. This darkness points to the Father's wrath being poured out on sin. God is angry about sin. 
God hates sin. And God is angry with sinners. And God will pour out his wrath on sinners. And it will be a terrible, terrible wrath. A a fearsome wrath. a, A wrath that will undo the human psyche. It will be a, a wrath that will, that will turn men's knees to jelly. It will be a wrath that will undo them. And it will be a wrath that will endure upon them everlastingly. It is a frightening reality. The wrath of God. And here it is poured out on his son. It is poured out on his son. Now people ask... How far did this darkness extend? Right? Again, look at verse 45. It fell upon all the land, Matthew records for us. The word, uh, the Greek word translated the land here could be translated the earth. So it, it could be legitimately translated that from about the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the earth until the ninth hour. That's certainly possible. That the entire planet, the entire globe went dark. It's also possible the darkness extended only as as far as Palestine, for the sign was for the Jews. We can't be sure. This is not a place to to drive one's stake too deeply into the ground. But I will say this, that, that the ancient writers, a number of the ancient writers, indicate that they had seen evidence that the darkness had extended far and wide. That it had extended far and wide. So perhaps... Perhaps God turned out the light on the entire planet. We cannot be sure. But we do know this. That when this darkness fell, it was a clear manifestation of the wrath of God. A terrifying darkness that is now punctuated several times right near the end as Jesus hung on the cross And finally broke his silence to speak. Verse 46. About the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words that Jesus cries out here, their cry of dereliction is a quote from Psalm 22 and verse 1. He takes to his lips the words of David the psalmist in Psalm 22 and verse 1. A psalm that expresses the spiritual desolation of a man who who continues to trust and, and appeal to God in spite of the fact that His ungodly opponents mock him and persecute him with impunity. As Jesus has been hanging here suffering, he calls out, in effect, why have you left me here so long? When will this end? That's essentially what he is crying here. When will this end? The expression itself is a a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic. The expression is a a mystery. It's a mystery that is so deep and so profound that I don't believe we will ever plumb the depths of it fully. We will never understand fully what Christ went through here. It will always escape our human comprehension. But somehow, some way, there was a breach in the Godhead. There was a breach in the Godhead. A breach brought on by Jesus becoming sin for us and experiencing in himself the accumulated fury of the wrath of God against all the sin that God had been patiently storing up his wrath for since the very beginning poured out on Christ. We're not speculating 
on this, for that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 3. Where he speaks in verse 25 of Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. A propitiation is a, a sacrifice that's, whose purpose is to turn away the wrath of God. Jesus was publicly displayed as a sacrifice designed to turn away the wrath of God, to placate the wrath of God. Paul goes on to say this was to demonstrate his righteousness, that is, God's righteousness, God the Father, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God did not immediately bring about the full weight of the wrath that is due the sin of each and every individual at the moment of its, um, at the moment it was committed. But he patiently stored it up. He waited and he waited and for, for years and for centuries and for millennia, the, the wrath of God, like, like water in a, in, a dub, in, a, in a pressure cooker, was boiling and growing and, and until it became superheated. And in the fullness of time, God poured out that wrath on his son. Verse 26, for, a, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. People ask, why does God have to punish sin? I mean, if he can do all things, why does he have to punish sin? Why doesn't he just look the other way? Why doesn't he just say, ollie, ollie, income free, I just forgive you all. Because to do so would to make him unjust. And it's an essential attribute of the, of the character and nature of God that he is just, he is wholly just. He is just and he is loving and he is merciful and he is angry. And it is all who he is. And so for God to look the other way, for God to not bring the punishment that sin deserves, the, the full weight of the punishment that the sin deserves would be to make God unjust, and God cannot be unjust. Well, then why doesn't he just destroy everybody? He could. But in his mercy and grace, he has chosen not to. In his mercy and his grace... Because he, he is chosen by his own sovereign will to, to extend mercy and grace and to share his love with his people. He pours forth his wrath on his son. Not an unwilling victim. For Jesus himself voluntarily left the side of the Father in glory to come into space and time. To bear the sin of his people. But here on that cross. Back here in Matthew 27. Jesus is feeling. Jesus is experiencing. The eschatological wrath of God. That has accumulated for millennia. Poured out on him. God is too pure to look upon sin. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. So when Jesus was made the sin bearer for his people, the father of necessity must abandon Jesus and curse him in our place. Of necessity, God could not look upon his son. Jesus became, according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Jesus became a curse for us. It's not just that he bore the curse, he became the curse. It was laid upon him. Beloved, these, these thoughts, these, these ideas, these truths are... They are hard to, to fathom. Hard to fathom. Jesus as our substitute, taking upon himself the, the absolute evil of all of the sin 
of all of his people, for all of time. And he did so completely alone. He did so completely alone. In the garden, his friends abandoned him. At the first phase of his trial, Peter denied him. Later on, the the Roman nation and the religious leadership mocked him. But none of that could compare to what he suffered here, the abandonment that he experienced here when the father turned his back on the son. For all eternity, for all eternity, Jesus had known the sweet inter-Trinitarian fellowship of father and son. In his incarnation, when he, when he left the Father's side to, to come and to walk among men, he knew an intimate relationship with his heavenly Father. He spoke of him in the, in, the, in the most endearing of terms, Abba, Father. But here on the cross, Jesus is completely alone. Completely alone. What had always been for him in his incarnation, the unfailing source of of inner strength and and the element of his greatest joy in life, filled with sorrow, had now been cut off. Had been cut off. He had been separated from his father. Think about the terminology that Jesus used throughout his, his life and ministry. When he spoke of of God the Father, right? He he introduced us to that terminology. This is his Father. He he referred to him as my Heavenly Father. Abba. But notice here. My God. My God. Not my Father, my Father, but my God, my God. I think it, it speaks of the separation, the intimacy that has been severed. It's interesting, down in, in um, and I lost my, ah, there it is, okay. Whew. Later, Jesus will say, Father, into your hand I I commend my spirit. I believe it's in John that he says it. And notice again that he he goes back to the term of intimacy, my father. So it's, it's my father, my God. When it's done, it's my father again. But here in this moment of darkness, in these three hours of darkness, the intimacy has been lost. Beloved, there is no pain like relational pain. There is nothing that cuts deeper than a severed relationship. And here on this cross, did Jesus suffer physically? Absolutely. But the real suffering, the vicarious suffering, the the suffering that, that satisfies the wrath of God is the suffering he experienced as he was separated from his Father on my behalf and yours. When Adam sinned, he died, didn't he? In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And he died. He died spiritually. That is, he was separated from God. He was driven from the garden, he and Eve. And then from that moment forward, Adam and Eve and all who would descend from them have been born dead in their trespasses and sins, have been born separated from God, have been born spiritually dead. Destined for an eternity cut off from God's goodness. Experiencing only his unmitigated fury. Again, we're Indebted to the Apostle Paul who reflects on such things. And in Ephesians chapter 2, 
Beginning in verse 1, he says, you, he's writing to believers here, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest we were by nature Children of wrath, separated from the goodness of God, under an sentence of eternal condemnation. And Jesus took our place. And Jesus took our place. Do you ever wonder how? In a brief period of time, eternal punishment could be satisfied? Did you ever think about that? I mean, why wouldn't Jesus hang on the cross eternally being punished for our sin? How is it possible for Jesus the Christ to, in a matter of a, of a couple of hours, absorb all of the wrath of God, the accumulated wrath of God, to, to drink the cup of the wrath of God to its final drops, to extinguish it, to empty it, to make it void. How could that be? The answer, again, is a, is a bit of a mystery, to be sure, but it, but it lies in this, I think, and that is that, that Jesus Christ is the infinite one. He is the God-man. He is an infinite being as second person of the triune Godhead. And thus, he was able to suffer eternal punishment for us and to purchase our redemption in a matter of a few moments of time. Praise God. Praise God that he is man and God. And together... He acted as our substitute. One writer says, for the first time, for the first time, the enormity of the sinfulness of sin was revealed. It required nothing less than the death of the Son of God to make a full and final atonement. How serious is sin? How big a problem is sin? Sin is such a huge problem that it can only be rectified by the very Son of God coming and dying on behalf of his people. We should never make light of sin, beloved. For it is sin that cost the life of Christ Jesus. He called out, verse 46, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When will this end? How long? Verse 47, some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. John's gospel tells us that following Jesus' cry from Psalm 22 and verse 1, recorded here by Matthew, that Jesus also called out that he was thirsty. He was thirsty. John tells us in John 19 that when Jesus said that, it was in fulfillment of the scriptures. To fulfill the scriptures, Jesus said, I thirst. And so someone there in the crowd in response got a, a sponge and they, and they went. And Matthew says here they put it on a reed. John tells us they, they put it on a branch of a hyssop, a hyssop bush. And they, they raised it up for Jesus to drink. By the way, that also indicates to us that Jesus was not crucified at ground level. For if he were crucified at ground level, there would be no need to put it on a stick. But there they put the sponge on the stick, a stick or a sponge dipped in, we're told here, sour wine that is basically vinegar that has been been diluted with water. 
It was a typical soldier's drink in that day. It was a, it was a way to, to hydrate. And so they dipped the sponge in water and they raised it to him to moisten his lips. He certainly didn't get a, a large quantity from it, but enough to moisten his lips. John pointing out to us it's to fulfill the scriptures. Doesn't specifically tell us which scriptures, but if you can uh, keep your thumb here in Matthew and turn back to Psalm 22, I'd like to suggest to you that it's verse 15 of Psalm 22. There the psalmist protests. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is by his own death recapitulating what David records under the inspiration of the Spirit in Psalm 22. So one kind soul runs to get him a drink. I'll I'll give the person the benefit of the doubt that it was an act of mercy, although that's not necessarily true particularly with what Matthew continues to say here, which is that the others stand around and say, let's see if Elijah will deliver him. Though it's possible they, they wet his lips merely because they want to hear it again, they just, they're enjoying this. Now the Jews had a tradition. The tradition is that Elijah, you remember Elijah, he was caught up to heaven, right? The chariots a. Uh, 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 A fire came and and delivered him alive into heaven. And and from that point forward, the Jews had a tradition that Elijah would come and and would deliver a righteous man in their time of need. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. In other words, let's see if he really is a righteous man. If he is, Elijah will come. And they don't expect him to come. It's interesting how they mistake what Jesus says here, for Jesus is calling out to God. But Eli is the the beginning of the word Elijah, and so they evidently mistake what he has said here, and they think he's calling for Elijah. But they're all settling back, taking side bits, as, as it were. Is Elijah going to really come and deliver him? Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It's interesting. uh, In Psalm 22, the structure of Psalm 22, it, it begins with desolation where the psalmist is, is crying out to God, he is, he is being persecuted. But in verse 22 through the end of the psalm, it turns. And it, and it becomes a, a psalm of hope, a, really even a psalm of joy. The writer there, David, in the, in the psalm, he's reflecting upon the deliverance that God w- provides for his people. And, and so he ends the psalm in verse 31. According to the, the New American Standard, it says... They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. That he has performed it. Now it's interesting, I think, that that expression, he has performed it, actually could be translated, it is finished. It is finished. The words that John records in John 19.30 as Jesus' final words before he yields up his spirit. Now again, I can't be 100% certain here. But I have a pretty strong inkling that Jesus was rehearsing to himself in these final moments of life as the full weight of the wrath of God, the accumulated fury that was being poured out upon him and crashing upon him like wave after wave on a break wall, that he fortified his soul by recalling to mind Psalm 22. 
And then he vocalizes it, verse 1. Refers to it in verse 15. And ends with the words of triumph. It is finished. It is finished. In any case, Matthew records for us here that he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What did he say in that loud voice? I think it's what Luke records for us in Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 32. And then Jesus literally let go his spirit. The Greek tells us. He let go his spirit. Now that's a very interesting way to describe death, don't you think? To use an active verb. And I would suggest to you that Matthew chooses this construction to make sure that we don't miss the reality that Jesus voluntarily surrendered his life. When it was done, when the cup of the wrath of God was fully drained, then he let go his spirit. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Beloved, the abandonment of Jesus here on the cross is a dark, dark event. The agony of it all, the desolation, it defies our ability to really understand. There's no way we can identify. But in it too is the the greatest joy, is it not? It is the greatest joy. Again, the Apostle Paul Reflecting on these things, records for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made him, that is, God the Father made him Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the means of our redemption. It is found here in the abandonment of Christ. And this is love, and not that we love God, but God loved us first and sent his son. I trust that you know the love of Christ this morning, not just know about the love of Christ, Not just know of the love of Christ, but that you know the love of Christ. That you have experienced Jesus. That you have closed with Jesus. That that you have become one with him in his suffering and his glorification. By grace, through faith. If that's true, and I know it to be true for many of you, then we can call it Good Friday, can't we? We can find here the the most glorious reality in the darkest event. But if you do not know Jesus, if you are not known by Jesus, then, beloved, I, with all of my heart, I urge you, I beg you, I beg you Paul says, working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I heard you, behold, now is the acceptable time, behold, now is the day of salvation. Beloved, God is speaking to you. 
right now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Not later, not tomorrow, not next week. Now. You know. The Spirit of God is speaking to you right now through His Word. You know. Come to Jesus. I'm going to pray and, and release you all, but I'll be down front here. Come see me. When the crowds start milling around, come see me. Father, on a Memorial Day weekend when we celebrate the ultimate sacrifice that a, that a human can make to lay down their life on behalf of another, We celebrate the slain of the numerous wars that have plagued our nation through its history. We remember their sacrifice and we are grateful for it. But their sacrifice purchased only temporal peace. The sacrifice of Christ produces eternal peace. The sacrifice of Christ deals with sin. And deals it a death blow. Oh Lord, let us contemplate that reality. Let us find in that reality the anchor of our soul. Our hope for today and beyond. Let it be the the message on our lips to proclaim far and wide. That we no longer must live under the tyranny of sin. We, we no longer need live in a, in a world in which the very thing we know we should do, we don't do. And the very thing we do not want to do, we find ourselves doing it and hopelessly and helplessly in bondage to sin and in fear of death. Jesus stepped in to our place. He took it. For us. He conquered death for us. And by his resurrection he lives forevermore. And we will live forevermore with him. This is the good news. Let us live it and speak it. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.